church responds, He is risen indeed. And on this Pentecost Sunday, uh, I long for and I some kind of way in which we can call and respond to the reality of what is probably after Easter, the most significant day of remembrance in the life of the church on an annual basis. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is one of the most significant acts in God's redemptive historical plan. The pouring out at Pentecost, something changes in such a way that when the Spirit is poured out, it fulfills so many longings and passages that it's hard to imagine this many years on how marvelous it really is. And quite frankly, I don't know how marvelous it is. I, I try and sort of drum up notions about it. And certainly reflecting on it and meditating on it increases its presence in my mind. And I'd encourage you to do the same. But as we've been talking through this uh, first couple of chapters of Acts, we've been talking about the book of Acts being a declaration of a revolution. The revolution of life. The revolution of the kingdom of God being established. The usurpers of sin and death being driven from the field. They have been broken. Now they are to be driven from the field and we participate in the richness of seeing Jesus' work through us by the Spirit to see the kingdom of God move forward in its character and its qualities in such a way that worlds are transformed. Cultures are revolutionized. And we talked last week about who was in the room, this upper room, and how diverse the group was. That is to say that you had conservatives and moderates, pragmatists, people who had been historically fairly monetarily driven, people who'd been religious self-righteously driven, people who'd been in the middle and just wished everybody would get along, people who have to see it to believe it. In Thomas, there is this diverse group of people in the upper room. There are the women from all kinds of background. Mary, who's wrestled her whole life with understanding who her son really is. They're gathered now with her other sons, waiting for the consummation of this great promise of the Holy Spirit. There are the women who had been with Jesus, Mary, and we imagine, of course, Martha, Mary Magdalene. Women who had seen the grace of Jesus poured out, how the most beautiful person the world had ever known because of his love and his compassion. Outwardly, apparently, he wasn't supposed to be terribly good looking, the Bible says because he had no outward beauty that we should find him attractive. But in the midst of that, he had gathered in so many people who had felt loved when they had been a part of the ostracized groups in their culture. And so now this revolution, which is come to restore, to be a fulfillment, to glorify God's creation and his people, comes to another key moment and crux in its development that enables so much that follows. It allows us to more actively be a part of what is going on, and it is a sign of God's presence with his people, the tabernacling of God with his people. So I want to put the text in front of us. We're just reading four verses this morning. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were there together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongue, uh, 
of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a marvelous thing your plan of redemption is. What an unexpected and amazing picture. When you sent your Son, when you sent the Spirit, that we might have deep fellowship with you. The promises, the hopes, the dreams fulfilled. Lord, as we live in this time, may we understand who we are, the blessings we have, and may in some small way through the preaching of your word, the encouragement to pour that out even as we revel in it ourselves. And whatever said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. Speaking of saying things wrong uh, and hoping people forget them, for years I've wrestled with this idea because I've seen the first chapter of Acts, and particularly the picking of the twelfth apostle, as being something about power. You know, most of the discussions tend to be about who has authority, and apostles have a lot of authority, and so you're picking who the apostles are, and so how do you pick somebody who should be in charge of you, and, and, and what is the way in which that decision-making happens? And of course, the irony is that if you look at it from an ongoing, who are the apostles moving forward into the kingdom of God, the next greatest apostle is going to be Paul, and Paul meets none of the qualifications that Peter and the rest of the group came up with. And so, in my infinite wisdom, I, uh, I deduced that this was evidence of acting before the Holy Spirit was poured out. And therefore, premature activity uh, in light of what they were supposed to do, which was wait. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was wrong. I'm wrong in this way because what's happening here at Pentecost is the fulfillment of the story of Israel in such a marvelous way that it was absolutely right and good that there needed to be a 12th good Israelite. There needed to be the 12th representative of the 12 tribes because what this is is the consummation of the promises of God to his people, that unique people that he set aside from Abraham moving forward, that they might be a blessing to the nations and it's coming true on this day. And therefore Israel needed to be constituted in its right and full sense. That's why they don't replace apostles when they start dying and getting martyred in future chapters because this fulfillment has happened. There needed to be that completion of Israel and in that way it gives us an image of God's faithfulness, his commitment to the story, his commitment to us and the church moving forward. What's our context in this passage? How far along are we in history? Well, we're quite a ways uh, down the road in history, and the context will be important when we begin to think about then what it means for us now to be those gathered together by the Holy Spirit. We're seven weeks after Passover. Seven weeks from Passover. Which means if we go back to the Exodus, we are at the foot of Mount Sinai. God has brought his people through. They've gone through the Red Sea. They've moved to the foot of Sinai. 
For first century Jewish folks, it had become a remembrance of the giving of the law. And so all of the power of what's happening at Mount Sinai as God presents himself, as Moses goes up, it's all in this passage here in Luke chapter 2. From heaven. From heaven a wind comes. God's people are gathered together waiting for God to act that they might know how to move forward in power and in strength. And in this first telling of the story, God comes to Mount Sinai in what? In a mighty wind from heaven. He comes from his dwelling place in heaven to the mountain to be present with his people and to give the law. And it is awe-inspiring to the point where God's people are terrified to get anywhere closer. And when God says, come up, let us speak together, they're like, no, why don't you just go, Moses? Because it is awe-inspiring when the power of God comes into a place, a mighty wind, a violent wind. The Bible's unafraid to call it violent. We would a gentle breeze that assured me of the loving embrace of Christ. Loving embrace of Christ is a true idea. However, when the power of God comes, the only way to describe it is violent wind. It moves and shakes the very pillars of the room. It shakes the pillars of the world itself. God manifests himself in the coming of the wind. Exodus 19, 16. The tongues of fire, of course, are that amazing picture of the presence of God. And in the midst of the scene in Sinai, there is great descriptions of fire. It is the fire that was leading God's people to Sinai. Now it comes in a way that it is enthroned there in the midst of them on Mount Sinai. The fire of God, that imagery of the, the purity and the light, the refining power, all of the imagery of the heat, the fear. Fire. We go back even further to Genesis and remember the scene in the great giving of the covenant in Genesis 15, where what is it that moves through the animals? Remember the scene with me. Abraham is making the final covenant with God, the sort of the final telling of this covenant, the promises that started all the way back in Ur, and Jesus, God has been revealing this promise of a child and a promise of blessing and a people, and it comes together in Genesis 15, and the way they cut a covenant in those days is you divided a bunch of animals up, and the idea was you walk through the animals, both parties in the covenant. Again, major formal covenants, not just an agreement uh, in, among neighbors. But in these great uh, covenants between leaders, they divide the animals. And the symbolism, of course, is that if I don't keep up my end of the covenant, may I be like these animals, divided apart, sacrificed. And, of course, Abraham could not have gone down through those animals because he would have died halfway through. It's the problem of being a sinful human being. So God causes Abraham to sleep. And instead, God himself goes through those divided animals. In what? A torch. A fire. He moves himself through those animals. This is the imagery of what is going to be present 
in the minds of all of these Jewish folks gathered together in the upper room. There it is, that tongue of fire that goes all the way back to what happened with Abraham, to our father who started this whole journey of the people of Israel now comes to dwell on us. No longer just dwelling on Sinai, no longer dwelling in the temple in the Shekinah glory separated from us in the tabernacle or in the temple, but now on us, indwelling us. It is an amazing story and it is a fulfillment of God's promises to his people. A promise to transform the very nature of existence to restore it to its original intention and beauty and to use his people to do so and it was happening to them. We can't go back there. My point is not to somehow make us long for the weight of that. It is, however, to remind us that God tells his stories over long periods of time of great faithfulness and he builds and he builds and he builds and it becomes more and more and more marvelous the more we understand the richness of who he is and how he deems to delight in us and to pour himself out for us and to give us power to be like him and to act in line with the way we were always created. And in our individual lives, do we recognize the stories of God's redemption where he has come to us time and time again in his patience and in his mercy and his revelation, giving us a picture of who we were created to be, even as that sometimes means a mirror for our own dark hearts apart from him, and to realize that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will bring these things to fruition, and they will come together in moments in our lives when we are filled with the Spirit, that we might do his work in a way that glorifies him. As the people are gonna pour out of this room and speak to the crowds about the glory of who God is and to begin to undo, undo Babel and undo all of the evil that had happened through humanity, the revolution begins. The revolution is in you by the Spirit. That promise, that future of a life that is a fulfillment of God's promises. And it will happen in mysterious ways. It will happen in ways that are to the world weak and meek and counterintuitive and look like shame and look like defeat and look like unnecessary fears and look like all manner of a lack of pragmatic wisdom. But the wisdom of God is always deeper and always different because our wisdom is based on fear. Our wisdom is based on self-protection. Our wisdom is based on the belief that we are God, small g, and we have to save ourselves. But once we recognize that he has saved us and now he reveals himself to us on Sinai and now in the upper room, we can begin to understand that the wisdom of the world was always meant to be revealed as false and temperamental and self-destructive. And that as we are revealed in Christ, we find that the revolution is one that brings life and that those things we held on to were never meant to give us that life. 
And we know we will fall back into it. What I love about the Exodus story is that the children of Israel are so clearly E.C. Bell, just in a lot of different people saying the same thing that I say all the time. Things like, it was really great when I was back in slavery. I remember there was meat. This, this road is hard. God, I want to go back to where it's safe. How often I return to my own vomit like a dog. That's all true of me. And yet he leads me forward. The Spirit draws me forward inexorably. For what purpose? For what purpose? See, we have this amazing fulfillment of these events, right? And it's this amazing transformation. The Spirit's poured out. And it is because there's a revolution, a revolution that is changing the world itself. But what is this revolution about? Is it just because God wants to get back in charge of the world as if he's not in charge of it now? Is it just because he wants to show himself to be mighty and powerful and do amazing supernatural healings of people like the apostles will do in a few days at the gate, beautiful gate? I want to suggest that it's not. I want to suggest that in the end, this is a revolution of intimacy. What we lost when Adam and Eve fell was first intimacy with God and then intimacy with one another. And that what Pentecost promises is a restoration of intimacy, intimacy with God in a way that, yes, many saints did experience. We wouldn't get the Psalms if there was not a, a presence of the Spirit in David and in the writers of those psalms because they express the intimacy, the longing, the anxiety, the praise, the hope, the glory. I don't want to suggest in any way that somehow that hadn't happened in the past, but now, now because of Jesus' fulfillment of the law, his, his completed work on the cross, the Spirit can be poured out on us and in us and through us in a way that provides intimacy with God that had not happened since Adam and Eve. That the dry bones have been breathed life into. The Old Testament saints looked forward to it. We have the delight of looking back and living in the context of that reality having been accomplished. It's about intimacy. Think about what happens. This fire comes into the room and then separates and dwells on each head. Not one central fire in the tabernacle that we all look to, one presence of God that we all gather around, but no individual dwelling with God in a way that is visually shown to us. Intimacy with God. Pentecost is a celebration of the first fruits. It is not just the, the giving of the Ten Commandments, but moving on in Israel's history, it was that great celebration of bringing in the first harvests and bringing them into the Lord. It was fellowship, it was blessing, it was God providing for His people, which of course also fits with all of the imagery celebrating with God the goodness of his blessing. The Lord's Supper. God providing for his people. We gather around those first fruits and delight to eat and be with him. Table fellowship. 
It's a tabernacle that you and I become. It's the first fruits of his blessing and God's provision, and it is the law. Right? Intimacy with God is built on the law. Because now that there is fulfillment in Christ, and now that we have the Holy Spirit, the ability to see how the law is intimacy with God can happen. I no longer fear condemnation. I no longer use the law to earn anything. What I'm able to do is see the wisdom and the brilliance of there only being one God. That my attempts to create images of that God is a distraction from my intimacy with the one and true God who will not be contained in my images. To learn what it is to bear his name well. As he took up Adam's fallen name, making himself flesh, he took up the fallen name of Adam and redeemed it by taking on flesh and fulfilling what Adam failed to do, how much more can I bear the name of the Lord well as he gives me the power to? As he's redeemed my name, I honor his. To learn to rest in the provision of the Lord and to Sabbath because God delights to remind me that I can never provide for myself enough. And he himself delights to rest and appreciate the goodness of what he's created and to enjoy the goodness of his creation. And then we start getting to those second tablet of the law parts of things and we realize, why would I steal when I'm co-heirs with the king of the universe? Why would I covet what another has when my father has given me everything? that I will ever need an eternity to boot? Why would I be unfaithful when I have a God who has so faithfully cared for me when I've played the harlot on more than one occasion? To be like God, to share now in the intimacy when I am faithful to my calling, faithful to my wife, faithful to my commitments, and I find that being someone true even when it is difficult, gives me greater insight to who God is. I can share with him in the cool of the day, in the evening, I think I understand a little bit more what it is to be you, to, be, to bear your image, God, because it was not easy to be faithful today. And I feel like I was humiliated in the midst of it. I feel like I was taken advantage of in the midst of it. Fill in the blank. And God goes, I know. But remember what I said when I taught you in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the. Remember the truth of who you are and this countercultural reality of the kingdom breaking forth. Don't be tempted to think that the way the world works is actually how things work. My truth is deeper. My truth is truer. I'm glad we could talk at the end of the day about what it means to be faithful. That's intimacy. We have that privilege and ability. Now that may be me talking to you and the Holy Spirit using your words to comfort me. It isn't just that I may hear something in my heart or in my head in private meditation, though it may happen in that way in intimacy. It is also real that when I talk with you, the Lord shares truths with me 
through you by his spirit, which is where we get to the second application of intimacy. It's not just intimacy with God, but it's intimacy with one another. Now the unifying factor of humanity is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit dwells on all of them, and they are unified now in the Spirit under the headship of Christ. The separation that humans felt from one another at the fall comes from the fact that they could no longer trust each other and their motivations, right? Adam and Eve were now opaque to one another. They no longer shared a common vision and goal for life. It was now every person for themselves, right? When they were unified under God, they knew the motivations of each other's heart was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But when they fell, when it became, maybe I can be God and have my own agenda, then intimacy was reduced because I cannot trust your motives, Your motives are most likely not for my good, they're for your good. Therefore, I have to watch out for myself. And humanity has limped along with that suspicious interaction to the point of Pentecost. Now you're going, E.C., I still have those fears. No, it's true. But we don't have to. That's the point of the Spirit. The Spirit comes, we now have a unified purpose and a unified understanding that God has established himself again, that the promises have been fulfilled, and that we are now God's people about the kingdom of God. We are about God again and not about ourselves. We have the opportunity, in classic Augustine form, we have the opportunity to do good. We have the opportunity in the Holy Spirit to share a common cause, not based on our own efforts, but in resting in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We can know ourselves better. Intimacy again with my own heart and thoughts. Do you feel alienated from yourself? Unable to have difficult conversations with your own heart? Afraid to ask yourself certain questions because you're afraid of what you'll tell yourself. By the Holy Spirit, you can engage that conversation again in the trust and sure knowledge that anything the Spirit may tell you about yourself is meant for your good and not your destruction. That the resources and the unconditional love to hear true things about you is not a God who leaves you out simply with the painful knowledge of your need, but in the context of having already saved you and loved you by the work of his son who was stripped naked and shamed publicly, that he will quietly come alongside you and tell you truths about you so that you can be free from them, no longer enslaved to them. The Holy Spirit will reveal new things about your new being because here's the thing those aren't true of you anymore the interesting thing is about hiding from ourselves is we give that power that says that's actually the true me i hide the stuff that i think is true and i present a falseness to you so that you'll accept me 
The Holy Spirit flips that thing around and says, no, actually who you are is this new creation in Christ without spot or blemish, and you keep pretending you're something else. You keep pretending that you are dead and dying and broken and sinful, and that was true of you. It's not true of you now. Act in line with who you are, not who you were. We become those who embrace our new reality. The enemy would tell you, you still are. And you're going, no, in Christ I am renewed. Those things are no longer true. Trust me, it's a different way to deal with your sin and brokenness and sanctification. To already be justified, to already be adopted, and then to allow the Holy Spirit to work in you that you might live increasingly more in line with who you are in Jesus is very different than saying, God sets this impossibly high standard and therefore I have to be incredibly self-critical to drive all the sin out of my life so that God can love me. That is a horrible way to live. Oh, but to learn, to learn what's new about you and the power you have in the Holy Spirit to do new and exciting things that the world will stand in awe of even as they are small and meek and quiet actions. You get to know who you are. There's intimacy with self, and there is intimacy with others. I've already alluded to the way that you can speak to me through the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit speaks to me through you. Uh, it's that a wonderful image that uh, C.S. Lewis uh, has about his Inklings group and how I know myself through interaction with you, and I see different facets of you as you interact with others, and as we gather together, we know one another better. The, the story is that when... Was it Ronald who passed away first? And C.S. Lewis realizes that when he passed away, he brought out a different aspect of one of his friends. You know the story, Jeff. Tell me the story. Charles Williams passed away, right? And there was an aspect that Charles Williams brought out of Tolkien that was lost. And in those rooms, it was just different. There was a way in which fellowship together as Christian brothers, sharing the intimacy and the richness of their craft and their calling, brought out aspects of themselves that I can't bring out of myself on my own. I need you. That's intimacy. That's what we were created to be. That's why God uses body language and this, this unbelievable interconnected reality of the Holy Spirit. That is enriched and deepened and profoundly transformed so that the opportunity to have relationships like David and Nathaniel becomes more common for us, not more rare. And we can speak to one another and hear each other and understand each other, which is part of the implication of what happens when they go out and they speak to all of these folks, gather together to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, and they hear each other in their own tongues. There's communication intimacy. It is the beginning of the undoing of Babel because now in the Holy Spirit, it's okay if we connect together, right? Why does God drive humanity apart at Babel? Because they had the wrong motivation, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, and therefore their religious activities would destroy them. And now with the power of the Holy Spirit poured out, we can gather together again for good. 
Babel is undone because now God's people can be fully unified. Humanity can communicate with one another because the work we do now is the work of the kingdom of God. That's the transformation of Pentecost. We can now safely undo Babel because God's people gathered together by the Holy Spirit have the power to do good, to do good in each other's lives and to do good in the world. It is a revolution. There are parodies of it. We must, at other times, when we have more time, talk about how those parodies sometimes become more attractive. But if we are really to do open hearts and open hands and open doors, it will be that unity of the Spirit that allows us to be open to one another, open to the work of the Spirit, and therefore open to the other open to having God live in us allows us to be open to having our hearts revealed by him, which allows us to be open to one another in interaction by the Spirit and then finally open to those we do not know. It's our motivation for doing safe families because there will be very little safe about it for us. We will get to know families that we don't often know. We will be engaged in some of the tragedies of cycles of poverty, of drug abuse, of abuse physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, we'll be exposed to it. Our families will be exposed to it. We'll have to prayerfully engage in how we care for those who've been wounded and in so having been wounded, wound others. Because victims become oftentimes, tragically, perpetrators. There's nothing safe about safe families. Not for us, except in the Holy Spirit. Because as we are open to Him, as we are open to what He's doing, we can be open to the other, trusting that God will care for us, our families, our time, our resources, that we can be redemptive in the lives of children and families because as they see what it is to be truly open and present by the Holy Spirit in people's lives, some will wonder if we've gone off the deep end and gotten drunk in the morning. How on earth can you do that sort of thing? And others will hear the goodness of the gospel and will be cut to the quick. What must we do to have that peace, that openness, that comfort? We have the opportunity in safe families to preach Peter's gospel Pentecost sermon as we open ourselves to the work of the Spirit. May God use us. May we delight in who he is, who we are in him. And as we do that, may others delight to know him better as we ourselves do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, we know we are safe in you. Yes, there are temperament, temp temporal challenges and dangers. But Lord, we are safe and secure in you. We pray that we would know that even as we go through wilderness. May we trust that your hand guides us and protects us. That even as we put ourselves, quote unquote, in danger, we know that there is no danger because you are with us. And that you will work those things for our good and for your glory. May we trust in the safety of a God who lives within us, who tabernacles and delights to make a living temple.
that more might come to know the glory of your presence and the peace of worship comes from the intimacy of being known by our God. Pray this in your name. Amen.